I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. After this fabulous glittering night, that's when the earthquake hit. This playground legend of sports writing. I wanted to leave behind more than that. Between the Montreal Canadiens and the Central Red Army team of Moscow. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Morgan Campbell has covered many matchups, rivalries and battles in his award-winning career as a sports journalist. But the feud that made him who he is unfolded in his own family. In his memoir, My Fighting Family, Morgan traces a history of squabbles and perceived slights that escalated through generations. And this happened despite the families coming together through marriage. It's a feud that reaches back to Chicago in the 1930s and then crossed the border to Canada when Morgan's parents settled in Toronto. But before we get to Morgan, we'll stay on the south side of the border, specifically San Francisco in 1906. It's a boom-time city poised on the brink of a devastating earthquake. This is the world we visit in the historical fiction novel The Phoenix Crown. The book is a collaboration between two titans of the genre, Kate Quinn and Janie Chang. They open the program today to talk about their mutual, lifelong love of history and why Gilded Age San Francisco was an irresistible backdrop. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Janie Chang and Kate Quinn became friends a few years ago when they were on a book tour together. They're both best-selling historical novelists and self-described history nerds. Kate had always been fascinated by the San Francisco earthquake and fire, and Janie really wanted to write about a Chinatown woman from that era. So the two friends came together and meshed those interests to write The Phoenix Crown. The novel opens in the days and hours leading up to the catastrophic earthquake. And we meet two young women whose lives intersect. There's Gemma, a soprano who comes to San Francisco to sing with Caruso, and Su Ling, a young Chinese-American woman determined to escape an arranged marriage. Their meeting is set against the backdrop of 1906 San Francisco, a lively city of cable cars, Gilded Age millionaires, and Chinese immigrants. Kate Quinn and Janie Chang, the authors of The Phoenix Crown, join me now. Kate is at home in Seattle, and Janie is at home in B.C. Hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Lovely to be here. Good morning. Kate, let me ask you first. This amazing city of San Francisco was all but destroyed in a day after the earthquake and subsequent fire. Can you give us a sense of the city in 1906 before that earthquake and and what drew you to write about it? It really was such a vibrant community. We're looking at the jewel of the West Coast here. I mean, it was a place that had made its fortune and really become a boom town in the gold rush. And at this point, the way most boom towns are, it wanted to get respectable. So they had a huge mix of people who had been drawn there by the gold and then by the railroads. You had people who had made their money and you had people who were looking to have fun. So you really had this place where 
there was energy, there was money, there was culture, and it was just a spot that seemed like it was absolutely vivid and begging for a story. And that's even before you get to the fact that almost the ent- so much of the city was leveled in such a devastating fashion just over a matter of days. Mm. Janie, you were particularly drawn to tell the story of San Francisco's Chinatown, and we see it through the eyes of this character, Su Ling, who I mentioned. What was that community like back then? It was essentially a Chinese ghetto. This was during the years of uh, the U.S. and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm-hmm. So you had uh, basically, you know, like six huge blocks uh, where 15,000 people were living and a great number of those were bachelor men since they were not allowed to bring their families or wives over. Um, it was a city that was being promoted by the white community as being filled with vice and opium dens and and brothels. But I really wanted an opportunity to show that ordinary people lived there. Ordinary people were going about raising their families and taking their children for walks along the streets. Uh, Ordinary people were just running businesses like grocery stores and laundries. And actually, when Kate first approached me, I was a little hesitant because I wasn't sure if I could find the right character to put there and the right character that we could find um, a way for our two very different heroines to cross paths. And then, you know, I did more research into Chinatown. The fact that what you see now of San Francisco's Chinatown is a complete, it's almost like a theme park. It was built after the fire completely destroyed Chinatown of 1906. Mm. And the merchant elders, leaders of Chinatown decided We have a chance to fight racism, change the negative image of Chinese. Let's turn this into an exotic Chinese-American theme park where Mm. people can come in and do their tourism thing. And they made a very deliberate decision with the architecture and with all the festivals. Right. Kate, Su Ling meets another young woman early in the story, Gemma who I mentioned, she's the young woman who has come to San Francisco to perform as an opera singer in a production of Carmen, which will feature one of the huge stars of the day, Caruso. What prompted you to make Gemma a singer? Really, that was quite easy because I uh, actually had the um, good fortune to, before I you know, became an author, I trained as an opera singer. I was, you know, took singing lessons from a very young age. I went to Boston University to study voice performance. I have a a highlight soprano voice, not unlike Gemma's voice. And for, you know, I did I did not end up obviously becoming a singer. I became a writer instead, which is, you know, its own funny story. But I always decided that, you know, I would love to actually, you know, put this, all of my, my degree knowledge to use and be able to write about the world of opera, which I do find fascinating. And it would be nice to have, I thought, a heroine whose, you know, career I did not have to do intensive research into because this is a world I know very well. So I really did think it would be great fun to write an opera singer heroine. And this seemed like the book to do it because I always found it particularly interesting that the night before the great quake hits, San Francisco really had, you know, its great social event of the season, which was anyone who was anyone was at the Grand Opera House 
seeing this performance of Carmen, which starred the Met Traveling Opera Company from New York. And then literally the following morning after this, you know, fabulous glittering night, that's when the earthquake hit. So just at the moment when the city was at its most triumphant and beautiful and had its, you know, social event of the season, it was destroyed so soon after. So I did think that was a wonderful uh, moment to have to include in the book is, you know, th- this famous performance, which was really the last, you know, gasp of San Francisco at its height before the mm-hmm. quake struck. Kate, I do have to say that even though you may feel sad that your opera training never uh, amounted to anything, in this conversation, your elocution and projection are terrific. So it, 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 if nothing else, you're coming across crystal clear on the microphone. <laughs> Um, oh, lovely. Yeah. I, I do feel like with this book, my student loans finally have come out of the corner <laughs> with a great cry. Yes, our hour has come. That is a big deal. Congratulations. Janie, Kate just mentioned it, and I've, I've mentioned it earlier too. The, the This is the Gilded Age, and San Francisco has all these um, millionaires and, and there's mansions to show for all that. Tell me, where did all that wealth come from at that time? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Robber barons. There were, you know, it was California. There was gold and silver mines. I mean, all those Chinese who were there had come to work on the railway. So there was railway money. And then after that, it was the gold rush. And there was, of course, all kinds of illegal trading going on. I would just say that it was robber barons. Mm, Not to um, throw San Fran under the bus too much, but do you see any parallels with that, with uh, San Francisco today? Uh, Silicon Valley, you mean? <laughs> I don't mean anything. I'm just asking the question. Kate. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I kind of do mean that. Yeah. Kate, the earthquake, uh, you know, as you both suggested, its damage was absolutely terrible. And, and almost in its entirety, the, the city was gone. But it was the fires that really, you know, laid the city completely low. San Francisco had a fire department. Why was it so hard to fight the fires? Well, the quake itself caused plenty of damage. It's hard to know exactly what it would have measured, you know, without modern instruments of the day. But it's estimated it was, I think, about a 7.9 on the Richter scale. And that's, you know, I'm a California girl born and raised, and that's a a big one. Mm. Uh, So there was plenty of damage from that, buildings that fell and so forth. But it was, as you say, the fires that really caused the damage. And that was because it was morning and fires began to bloom in the aftermath of the quake just from cook stoves that had been, you know, abandoned or that fell over, you know, from blocked chimneys. The trouble is, though, is that although San Francisco had quite an excellent fire department, and it is a city that is geographically surrounded by water, most of the water mains had been broken in the course of the quake. So it was a case of the, you know, the fire department had nowhere to hook their hoses up. So that was really one of the reasons why fighting the fire was so difficult. So all of this, you know, really resulted in, you know, a much, much bigger catastrophe than just the initial quake would suggest. Got it. Janie, interesting thing I read in the author notes was that the the city rebuilt Chinatown after it was destroyed in such a way that, that the template for that rebuild was used in other places. Can you tell me a little bit about that rebuild? It was pretty amazing. It was a deliberate architectural decision. The city's um, Chinatown's fathers sort of, uh, they actually hired a Western architect and he came through with his vision of what Americans thought 
China looked like. So as buildings with those swooping, curling up eaves and the mm. decorations on the roofs and the fancy balconies and it became very successful. It became, because prior to that, Chinatown was just a bunch of San Francisco apartments along the street and people had made their homes there and put shops on the ground floor. And this new exotic architecture drew tourists. And not only did it draw tourists, you know, during the regular year, it was there to promote some sense of it might be interesting to experience Chinese culture. Wow. This was such a successful formula in trying to combat racism that many other Chinatowns took up that same idea. And this is why um, a lot of people think that, well, you know, Chinatown looks like this because this is what China actually looks like. And no, not really. Hmm. Kate, let me ask you about these these two heroines, Suling and Gemma. This is not a time where women could easily make their own way financially uh, or, or otherwise. And they both these heroines really do want to. They want to look after themselves. They don't want to rely on men or husbands. Tell me a little bit about the forces that were working against them from doing that. Well, any... Any woman in that era is going to find a hard time, you know, trying to make her own way independently if without a family, without without marriage. And we really did want to show two women who want a career and or who want to have at least that foothold of independence so they do not have to rely on others. Um, for Suling, it's difficult to do that because she ha- does not have, you know, the family and she has a community in Chinatown, but she does not have a family. She's orphaned and she's been recently abandoned by, you know, her lover who who has left her high and dry. And so she is trying very hard to think, I'm going to escape the arranged marriage that is being made for me. I am going to you know, try to get my own career going. She's a talented embroideress. That's about the only thing she has going for her. Mm-hmm. And that's the way she's going to try to make her way and to try to, you know, get herself a little financial independence. Uh, For Gemma, she's an artist, which is always a very chancy way to make a living. I mean, making a career on the stage is always hard. It is uh, difficult. And she's also hamstrung by health issues. She suffers from debilitating migraines. And if a migraine hits, she can't necessarily perform. So really, we wanted to have this be a story about women who are not just, you know, looking for love, looking for a husband, looking for some of the, you know, the usual things, they're looking for something a little bit extra. And that's why we decided to bring in uh, another character who is sort of the temp, the model for both of them and a friend to both of them. And that is the character of the botanist, Alice Eastwood, who was a real historical figure. She is a woman who is a little bit older than both. She is a woman who has achieved financial independence and a successful career and with all on her own merits and all on her own work. And so we have this woman as a little bit of a not only a friend and mentor to both of our heroines and not only, you know, a real life fascinating historical figure, but she's also something, someone that they can aspire to. It's like, yes, it is possible. Mm. It is difficult, but it is possible. You said that she was a, a, a real person or based on a real person. How did you come upon her story? Well, when you're... Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> she just kind of leaped off the pages. We had to work so hard not to let Alice Eastwood take over the book. She huh. was such an a magnificent human being. She really was. Uh, it's one of those things where when you were reading about, you know, the many acts of heroism and bravery, uh, you know, in the crisis of the earthquake and the fires afterward, one of the stories that stood out was the story of Alice Eastwood, who was an intrepid lady botanist. And she was uh, 
curator of botany at the California Academy of Science. And she almost single-handedly saved up about 1,500 rare plant samples from her uh, museum and lab before the fires could consume the building. And this woman, you know, literally like scaled a building in, that was, you know, six stories tall, practically just in her boots, and managed to get away with all of the 1,500 plant samples that would otherwise have been lost to science and the clothes on her back and pretty much nothing else. And I thought immediately, that's a dame. That's a dame mm-hmm. we've got to put in this book. It was just so thrilling because we actually went to the California Academy of Sciences and the lovely archival librarians um, brought out cartloads of materials for us to read. And there was Alice Eastwood's own account of what happened during the fire. It was just mind-blowing to be able to read those her own words. Let's um, shift from Dame to another character, uh, Henry Thornton. He's the Gilded Age magnet in your in your story. He's got a, a obsession with Chinese antiquities and antiques. And one of his main treasures is the Phoenix Crown from the title of the book. So I wanted to ask you about this Phoenix Crown and also about how Henry Thornton got these, you know, sort of priceless treasures. The Phoenix Crown is sort of the the category of name for these headdresses worn by uh, previous empresses of China. And one of the features was a very, very precious type of ornamentation, which is kingfisher feathers. And kingfisher feathers are tiny. They're this iridescent blue. And because the blue is an optical illusion rather than being dyed, the color never fades. And during two of the sacks of of Beijing, the Summer Palace in in the 1800s and then the Forbidden City in the 1900s, a lot of these antiquities and treasures were just looted by foreign troops. And in our story, Henry Thornton, who is a collector of antiquities, who really loves art and culture, really does have an appreciation for these things, He's acquired a phoenix crown, mm. and that is something that he really wants to see Gemma wearing someday when she sings a great role. Mm. You were friends when you started this collaboration. Uh, does that friendship remain? Has this book broken anything in into pieces? <laughs> it was our goal right from the beginning, you know, before we even really knew what this book would be about, is that we knew we wanted to have a book at the end that we were proud of. And we knew we still wanted to be friends at the end of it. And I'm very glad to say that we managed on both accounts. <laughs> That's great. Thank you to both of you. There's a lot to be proud of here, I have to say. It's a it's a very engaging read and uh, illuminating as well. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for inviting us to be on your show. My pleasure. Kate Quinn and Janie Chang are the authors of The Phoenix Crown. Kate was at home in Seattle and Janie was at home in BC. Olivia Pasquarelli is one of our trusted freelancers here at The Next Chapter, but her day job, sometimes night job, is as a singer, songwriter, and guitarist known as Baby O. 
And like everyone who puts this show together, she's a committed reader. Here is Baby O. Hello, I'm Baby O. I play guitar and I write songs about my life in Toronto. Right now I'm reading Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Crying in H Mart is a memoir about Michelle's experience of losing her mom to cancer in her mid-twenties. Michelle is the singer and guitarist in Japanese Breakfast. And in this book, she reflects on her experiences of growing up between Korea and her home in Eugene, Oregon. She uses food as a way to reflect back on experiences and memories that she shared with her mom. And the book feels very visceral because of all of the depictions of shared meals and ingredients. And I found that really relatable as someone who also grew up in a home that was very centered around food and connecting with family over food. The book starts off with a story about Michelle going into an H-Mart to buy Korean groceries because that's what her and her mom would do together. And she's just overcome with sadness and starts to cry. And like Michelle, I also lost my mom to cancer when I was 20. And I still find it really difficult to come across certain items particularly food because we shared a lot of memories and good times around eating together. Um, For me, it's O. Henry bars. My mom would always keep O. Henry bars in her car uh, as a little snack in case we got a little too hungry or she would say, oh, you know, I'm feeling a little lightheaded. We need to eat something. And she would pull out an O. Henry bar and she always had them stashed in her car. I I still cry every time I see O. Henry bars. I remember when I lost my mom when I was 20, I felt really isolated in that experience because I was young and a lot of my other friends hadn't gone through something like that yet. And I think Michelle does such an amazing job in this book to capture that feeling of being a young person full of so much hope and promise of what's to come. You know, Michelle's a very successful musician and she had all of these incredible opportunities coming her way and at the same time losing her mom. And I felt hearing this story made me feel seen and less alone. And I think what I took away from this book is that we hold on to our loved ones in so many incredible ways. And Michelle just paints a really beautiful picture of that experience. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ashley Tate, the author of 27 Minutes, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1.
In his day job, Morgan Campbell writes about sport and its intersection with race, culture, politics, and business. But he shifts focus from the playing field to the personal in his new memoir. In My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us, Morgan introduces us to his family, the Jones and the Campbells, two black families from the American South who settled in Chicago during the Great Migration. Perceived slights and class differences spark a feud, and it intensifies when Morgan's family moves to Canada. In his memoir, Morgan explores what it's like to be black in Canada with American roots. He unravels how history, race, and family played pivotal roles in shaping his identity. And Morgan Campbell is an award-winning sports writer. He's a senior contributor at CBC Sports and a contributor to the New York Times. And before that, he spent almost two decades writing for the Toronto Star. Morgan, welcome to the Toronto studio. Hey, it's great to be here. It is wild how much I connected with on this book. I don't want to speak for uh, all people with a Punjabi background, but uh, but I will say that many of us will connect with um, you know, petty grievances <laughs> to few, stubbornness. Basically, in 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 summary, Listen, incredible stubbornness that cuts across cultural lines. Because I've, like among the early readers of the book, I've had people from different cultural backgrounds say to me, "That sounds just like my family." Yeah, like, from the specific, you find the general sometimes, <laughs> exactly. and you really it is quite a unique story. But man, you really like you're hitting all kinds of things. Um, two formidable forces uh, shape your family dynamics. Claude Jones is your maternal grandfather, yeah, my mom's dad. Exactly. and then Mary Jane Gibbs is your paternal grandmother. You call her Granny Mary. Yeah. Uh, what did Claude Jones and Granny Mary think of each other? <laughs> Claude Jones and Mary Jane Gibbs, they went to high school together, far south side of Chicago. And they might have known each other even before that because. My mom's family, my dad's family, all went to the same church, St. James AME, which is right down the street from where my dad grew up. And they did not like each other, <laughs> right? And so when you talked about class differences at the top of the show, the slights were perceived often, but the class difference was also 100% perceived. Mm. So my grandfather, like Claude, thought of the Gibbses, you know, as a little bit country and backwards. Whereas she thought of the Joneses as stuck up because they lived in a white neighborhood. But the white neighborhood they lived in was a working class white neighborhood. It was just the fact that my great grandfather got a job at a lumber yard in the neighborhood and the owner of the lumber yard also rented houses to employees. And so that was where they lived. But this idea that false idea that they came from different social classes was part of it. And there's also just their personalities because they're very much the same. They're both people that loved attention. They loved control. Neither of them really knew what to make of someone who wanted to do something other than what Claude or Mary thought they should do. Mm. And so, like, two people like that, uh, they were never going to mix. Right. And so, naturally, all these years later, uh, her first son and his first daughter wind up getting married. Yeah, in an in a <laughs> ultimate loss of control, in a sense, right yes. there. They've lost control of the situation where you're marrying my enemy, uh, my enemy's kid. Let me ask you more about uh, Granny Mary. You, you paint a pretty layered portrait of her in this in this memoir. Who yes. is she to you? So that's my dad's mom, and uh, you know her husband died. Uh, my dad's dad. He was hit by a car in Chicago a few years before I was born, and so I never knew you know my dad's dad. So she, in terms of my dad having parents, she was it. And uh, you know, when you're little, you don't really realize what makes an adult tick 
or what about one adult would turn off other adults, right? But you get into your teenage years and you see it. So uh, Granny Mary was a complex person. She, Granny Mary liked to give and to help, but with conditions, Mm. okay? One time my dad got his car stolen and she helped him with a down payment on his next car and she would just remind him of it in ways that she tried to present like a joke, but it was not a joke. She went through a lot, right? She was a teenage mother. She was abused. This is a victim of abuse. Her husband used to beat her up almost every weekend. And so there's a lot going on with her and a, and, and a lot of different things in addition to just her personality that made her the way she was. It made her as difficult as she was. Mm. Your grandfather, Claude Jones, on, on your um, maternal side, he uh, also complex, multifaceted guy. And you mentioned earlier that um, they both loved to be the center of attention. In Claude's case, he was often professionally the center of attention. Yes, 100%. He was a talented uh, jazz pianist, mainstay of Chicago clubs, enjoyed that spotlight. How would you describe his influence on your life? On my life, you know, the the thing that stands out the most... (laughs) My grandfather's extremely talented, very stubborn, uh, was actually not going to come to Toronto. And my grandmother had to talk him into coming here just to take a gig one time to see if he would like it. Mm. And then he wound up liking it, wound up moving here like that same year, 1966. So in some ways, like I owe him everything in the sense that my parents weren't going to have more than one kid if they had stayed in the U.S., they stayed in Chicago, they were going to have one kid and just pour all their resources into that one kid because it's so much more expensive to raise a kid down there. And him coming to Canada is what made the rest of my family start seeing Canada as an option. And that's the way he would tell the story, the way that puts himself at the center. And he's the pioneer and he's the person, again, that everybody owes something to. Uh, but the other thing that he wouldn't really talk about that my mother would point out to us, right, is that he was about 10 years old, his sister's 18. She's getting ready to go to uh, junior college. She wants to become a librarian. His parents said, we do not have money for our daughter to go to college and our 10-year-old son to keep taking piano lessons. We got to choose between our daughter and our son, and they chose their son. Knowing what that would mean for my Aunt Edith, grandpa's big sister, Claude's big sister, in terms of what she could do career-wise, right? Her options were pretty uh, narrow, and she wound up Her career, she was a domestic. She went to work for this rich white family in Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is. And because her parents chose the son's future over the daughter's. So grandpa would say we owe everything to him. I say we owe everything to Aunt Edith Mm. because she's the one. She didn't make the sacrifice. She had her future sacrificed for him. Yeah, right. Um, and so when your parents marry, you become both a Jones and a Campbell by blood. Not when they marry, but when I'm born. When you're born. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So Eventually. It took 11 some time. years in between. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, how does that shape your reality, that you're both those things? Uh, one of the undercurrents in this book is this, this, this prospect of reconciling you know, disparate identities. Because you know, people do like for you to choose, mm. right? Same reason they ask, where are you from? What's your last name? They want you to choose. And so... You know, I'm a dual citizen. I'm Canadian and American. 
And people ask me, are you Canadian or American? I said, yes. I'll sue them. I'll sue them. I'm Canadian. to know, yeah. And American. I'm a Campbell. I'm a Jones. And that's what makes like my sisters and I different from everyone else. When the two families don't get along, sometimes it's tough to uh, find the freedom and the leeway you know, and the personal sense of security to make that conclusion. Mm. And that's why this is a journey and not just something that you wake up feeling. Because you, as you grow up, you, le- you see the two sides of your family feuding and you start to learn what's at stake. Mm. Your grandfather, yep. Claude, moved here after a couple of yeah, gigs. Yeah. He liked the vibe, yep. came begrudgingly, found it pleasant enough that he would live here. Yeah. What promise did Toronto hold for him and for your family? For them, it was a fresh start, and it was a place that was big like Chicago, on a great lake like Chicago, but cleaner and friendlier than Chicago. The city back then obviously wasn't as diverse as it is today, but as black people moving here back then, there's so much they didn't have to take into account when they were trying to just find an apartment. They didn't have to worry about the racial makeup of the neighborhood or whether landlords would try to keep them out of whatever neighborhood just because they were black. They could just find a place to live and go live there if they could afford it. And that's what they did. As you start to think about belonging and identity, you look for a weapon against anyone who wanted to minimize you. And you discover The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Tell me what that book meant to you. High school at the Woodland School in in central Mississauga, we actually had a a decent number of black kids. Back then it was frustrating, periodically getting cross-examined by some other black kids whose parents are from the Caribbean who could not make sense of the fact that my folks were not from there too. Now, like as a grown-up, I don't hold it against anybody because what all of us were, were Canadian and black with some some other cultural identity too, trying to force these identities to coexist, you know, because, you know, in our brains, like Canadianness and blackness don't really go together. We're trying to make it work. You know, periodically I would get, again, cross-examined. Where are your parents from? Where are their parents from? Where are their parents from? What do you mean they're not from an island? And so when I started reading, that really started deepening this connection I had to black American. It's not just uh, when people would treat me like I was this outlier, you know, it let me know that I was not this outlier. There's this big group of people in this big body of work and these fascinating stories. And I come from that wellspring. I enjoyed like this James Baldwin, this quotes somebody who would could not bend, they could only be broken. Yes, that was him talking about his dad. Yeah. Yes. It made for such a powerful read to have that sort of weaved in um, James Baldwin's own uh, you know, wisdom. And he was talking about his father there. Yeah, exactly right. A part of the book that's also quite emotional, or it certainly was for me, he's talking about when you were in high school and your dad finds out he has advanced cancer and it is spread. Mm. What was that year after the cancer diagnosis like for your family and yourself? My dad did a really good job of sort of disguising um, the extent to which this liver cancer, because that's where it metastasized to, but the extent to which it was really beating him up, like you wouldn't have been able to tell. So when he was on chemotherapy, he'd be really hungry all the time. You could see the the chemical in his veins. It's black. Mm. Uh, You know, his hair would fall out. But then when they'd cycle off of it, his hair would grow back. You know, he went back to work. Um, I sort of wish I had a better idea of what was actually happening in the sense that, you know, he's telling us he's going to live another 10, 12, 15 years. But most people in his position, you know, his diagnosis, his actual diagnosis was six months from September of 93. And so in some ways, I wish I had clued in 
earlier to like the urgency of it. But at the same time, I don't know how I would have been able to focus on that year of school mm. with that sort of expiration date printed across my dad's sure. forehead, you know? Not just school, but you were you were driven in another significant way. You had you had football goals yes. and dreams that you were pursuing aggressively, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean you don't you don't know too many young people who are that focused and that committed. It felt like you were really committed to your goals at that time too. Yeah. And so I don't know if I would have had the bandwidth for another big source of stress. Again, the actual diagnosis was six months. He wound up living twelve. Mm. How does your relationship with Granny Mary change when your father dies? For a lot of black Americans, a synonym for funeral is a homegoing. The last week of my father's life, my Granny Mary, his mom, stayed in his apartment while he was in the hospital. After he died, obviously, she was still in his apartment until the day after his homegoing. And there is a chapter in this book, and I'm going to leave it at this, called The Homegoing Heist. Hmm. So I'll let you guys read the chapter and find out what The Homegoing Heist is all about. When your Granny Mary passes away, yeah. you rush to her house, yes. you gather all the Campbell family photographs, considering the complex feelings you would have had towards her, particularly at that time and your family's history. Why was having those mementos so important to you? Because it's still a part of who we are And she had so much of what had belonged to my dad that should have belonged to my sisters and me. Now, I was there when she and my mom negotiated the deal over my dad's ashes. Hmm. But when she died, that was the first thing I got was my dad's ashes. They're in my mom's house right now. (laughs) And just these pictures that, like, so many of them I hadn't seen. You know, I learned so much about her and about her husband. Uh, my dad's dad. It was important for me to have that stuff. You know, you are a husband, you are a father. How does this uh, legacy of your family, how does it influence the way you approach your roles as a husband and a father? Yeah, a lot of it is uh, not even big picture, small picture, just day to day. You know, my dad wasn't a perfect parent, but he was a very good parent. I don't have any complaints about, you know, the way either of my parents raised us. My parents gave me examples to follow in terms of how to be a parent. My dad also gave me examples to avoid in terms of how not to be a husband. Mm. You know, but he did the best he could given who his role model was. You know, a lot of the reason I wrote this book is I just wanted to see how good I was. Could I write, not just write a book, but write a good book. Could I write a book that endures? Because one of the things you'll see like in this book is again, you know, my mom's, Dad was a musician for almost 50 years, worked with a lot of well-known people, but he did not leave behind like a library of music. So there are certain songs that he's on, well-known songs that you listen to, but you don't know that Claude Jones is on them unless you know Claude Jones personally. I wanted to leave behind more than that. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, you know, like this playground legend of sports writing where people talk about, oh yeah, he was really good. Well, where's the book? I don't know. Mm. You needed more of a legacy. Exactly. Thank you for writing it. It was a great read. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. I'm glad you liked it. Morgan Campbell is the author of My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines, and The Battles That Made Us. He was in our Toronto studio. The Halifax writer Rachel Reed is a longtime hockey fan, and she's the best-selling author of queer hockey romances. 
Hockey themes are a very popular subgenre of romance writing. And Rachel has written the series Game Changers and most recently the standalone novel Time to Shine. It features teammates from a fictional NHL team who fall in love. Here is Rachel Reed. Time to Shine is a hockey romance between two uh, teammates who play for a fictional Calgary-based NHL team. Um, Landon is um, a backup goalie, or he's called up to be the backup goalie when the backup goalie for Calgary gets hurt. So it's kind of like a little chance for him. He doesn't expect to actually play, and he only expects to be maybe, maybe covering a couple of games or so, but... Then it turns out that the uh, the Calgary goalie is going to be out for a couple months, so he ends up uh, staying longer than he thought, so he gets his time to shine, and um, he befriends a young kind of superstar teammate, Casey Hicks, and he's just like a really fun, like laid-back guy, and he just recently bought himself a really big house that he's living all alone in Calgary, but he hates being alone, and he's scared of the dark, so he invites... Uh, landed to live with him while he's going to be in Calgary, and then uh, they become friends, and then they uh, fall in love. Like, I've written quite a few hockey romances. My other books have dealt a lot with um, homophobia and kind of some toxic aspects of hockey culture, and this one's not about that. But also, I just really wanted to write a story about um, somebody who's... Uh, grieving, which Landon is. That's a big part of his story. He lost his sister when he was young, and he's kind of been alone ever since, just with the the way that hockey works. Like, he went away for junior hockey, and then he's been playing in different cities away from his family ever since, so he's been kind of alone with his grief. So I wanted to write a book that explored that theme a bit, and I wanted to write something that was... That had a character like Casey that was really, like, the opposite of Landon in every way, just very fun, kind of, like, uh, based on some of the the newer, funner, flashier uh, young NHL players that we're seeing. I, I wanted the book to be a warm hug. I wanted it to be something that makes people smile when they're reading it. And, you know, I hope that uh, it does that. I know that it does have some, some heavier themes in it, but I, I hope that it just generally uh, makes people smile and uh, that they really like the characters because <laughs> I enjoyed writing them. That was Rachel Reed in Halifax talking about her hockey romance novel, Time to Shine. Ken Dryden has lived a big life, and some of those many experiences have found their way into his books. His breakout book was The Game, published 40-plus years ago. It's an account of a season in his life as a goalie for my hometown, Montreal Canadiens. Alongside books about hockey life, Ken has written about education and politics. He's worked as a lawyer and he was a Liberal MP and a cabinet minister for a number of years. His most recent book begins in 1960. It's called The Class and it traces the lives of Ken's high school classmates. They were a group of post-war kids who entered grade nine in a country rich with possibility. Here is Ken Dryden answering the next chapter's version of the Proust questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. My favorite writers are uh, Bill Bryson and Steven Pinker. Bill Bryson um, can really write. I mean, he's a he's a terrific writer, and he 
can take quite dense, complicated things and make even me understand. I, I love his his book, A Short History of Almost Everything. I have read it more than once, and I don't reread books. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? I would love to have learned how to play the guitar. I love music. I sing along to anything. And I'd love to be able to make music. And I don't think that I would have the discipline to sit down and, and gradually learn how to play the piano. I could see myself strumming a guitar uh, and just finally getting it a little bit by little bit. What phrase do you most overuse? Probably the phrase I overuse most is, it's really interesting. And uh, I, I mean it. I mean, I think that something is really interesting. I'm, I'm not sure that the person that I'm speaking to will necessarily agree with me. <laughs> what is your greatest regret? There are certain games I would love to play again. And, and first among them is a very famous game that was played on New Year's Eve 1975 between the Montreal Canadiens and the Central Red Army team of Moscow at the Montreal Forum. And this was a hugely anticipated game, almost for international bragging rights as to who was the best. And as a team, we were terrific. I mean, we were, I think it's the best game I ever saw our team play. And the only one who didn't play up to the level of the game was me. I wasn't as good as everyone else was, and I wasn't as good as the game was. And when you're in a game like that, you have no right not to play up to the level of it. What is your greatest extravagance? Hardcover books and great cheeseburgers. What is your favorite occupation? I don't, I don't think of myself as having an occupation. I see myself as doing things that I find <laughs> really interesting to do. I never thought of myself as a hockey player. I thought I was somebody who played hockey. I never thought of myself as a lawyer, but as somebody who had graduated from law school. I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as somebody who writes. Whatever subject really interests me, then I'll sort of apply what others might call um, an occupation to it that seems to be the most appropriate. Sometimes it's best to pursue that kind of interest through writing, sometimes through politics, but, um, but it's the interest rather than the occupation. Where would you like to live? First of all, and in general, I love living in Canada. And I have had chances to live elsewhere. I lived for four years uh, in the U.S., going to university. Lived a year in Cambridge, England, um, in the, as I started writing a book. And I loved both places. But when I was there, not even intending to, I became more and more insistently Canadian. And I'm sure annoyingly and insufferably Canadian. And, and insisting on bringing up Canadian names um, when, any, you know, when everybody else was talking about their 
favorite TV people or authors or something. I mean, I'd when I was younger, it would be, you know, Lauren Green. Yeah, yeah, he's a Canadian, you know. On and 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 Raymond Burr. Huh? He's from Vancouver. And Saul Bellow. He's from Lachine. And Art Linkletter. Well, you know, he's from Moose Jaw. And always finding a way of fitting in Canadian names just to, I guess, <laughs> remind people that I existed and Canada existed. In, in a more general way, what I really love to do is I love to live in a big city. I love that most big cities are near open spaces. And I, I love when we live near our kids and grandkids. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Really, it is hanging around and, 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 and just hanging around, hanging around with our kids and our grandkids. And maybe at the same time, drinking a triple thick chocolate milkshake. Who are your favorite characters in history? My favorite characters, I think, are, are, are people who change the way we think. So, you know, one of them is Darwin. Another one would be Galileo. But whoever it is that has, you know, over time, had that kind of impact. What is your greatest achievement? It hasn't happened yet. Who are your favorite heroes in real life? I think I've actually only had one hero in my life. And it's, it's my brother Dave, uh, who's, who's six years older. And in my childhood world, he could do everything that I wanted to do. That was Ken Dryden answering the Proust questionnaire. His most recent book is The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. That is our show today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. My thanks this week to Emily Carvesio, Trevor Carter, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the illustrator Maurice Velikoop on his coming-of-age graphic memoir, I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together. Growing up gay in a religious household in the 70s had its challenges, and Maurice gives us an insider account in his honest and beautifully drawn book. And our contributor Ryan B. Patrick will talk with Tanya De Rosario about her book of personal essays, Dinner on Monster Island. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.